Welcome to Reason with Science. I'm your host Jitendra. This episode is with Chris Ferry. He is an associate professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, and Center for Quantum Software and Information. His research focuses on quantum information science. Chris also writes children's books, and some selected titles include Quantum Physics for Babies, Eight Little Planets, and Pandemic for Babies. In this conversation, we talk about beginning of quantum physics, double slit experiment, matter, understanding reality, quantum entanglement, and quantum computing. Enjoy the conversation. Share and subscribe to support the podcast. Thank you for listening. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, I mean, thinking about quantum physics, uh, I mean, of course, a lot of physicists, people, they would say that uh, um, this is like the most successful theory out there, or one of the most successful theories. Um, but then uh, another notion is that we don't understand it. So how much of that part is true? Yeah, so there's lots of quotes from famous physicists, especially saying that we don't understand quantum physics, I think uh, one of the most famous ones is from Feynman. Uh, I think he was kind of riffing on this idea that, I, th- I can't remember the newspaper said that there's only 13 people in the world that understood relativity. Um, and he said, uh, Feynman said, well, that's probably not true. Or maybe at one point, one person might've understood it. And then they wrote the paper about it. Uh, and then if you read the paper, it's quite easy to to understand. But he said he could safely say that nobody understands quantum physics, uh, <laughs> including himself, who you know won a Nobel Prize for quantum physics. So it certainly seems uh, at odds that you know all of these Nobel prizes were awarded for quantum physics, yet uh, they also say that they they can't understand it. Uh, I guess it depends on your notion of understanding, right? Because all of the technology that we enjoy today, including the technology that we're using to record this, is based on our understanding of quantum physics. So certainly there are some people out there that understand quantum physics, otherwise we wouldn't have this technology. So the question is, what do we mean by understand? And I think there it becomes pretty deeply philosophical. Although we can always take the, again, the um, example from Richard Feynman, um, the, the, that if I understand something, I can create it. And and the fact that we are able to create certain technologies using quantum physics means to a certain extent, we do understand it, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so he what it was he wrote on his board. And uh, if I cannot, I cannot, I do not understand what I cannot create. Um, and yeah, I think in some sense at the time, there wasn't a lot we could create in in terms of like the fundamental aspects and questions of quantum physics. But nowadays we can. Uh, during his time, we didn't have access to individual atoms and photons and quantum systems. And and nowadays nowadays we do. I mean, the Nobel Prize was was awarded in in physics this year for that very fact that we can manipulate and control individual quantum systems. Certainly, there is like a lot of excitement. Um, I mean, it was even before in the field, but after the Nobel Prize, I think people are like really talking about the topic. They want to understand and they, 
I think they felt like that it was a validation from scientific community, which is, uh, I don't know, again, it's uh, counterintuitive, but <laughs> we, uh, uh, I mean, yeah, so th that's just, I, I think, how we think of, uh, like, the validations and this, this kind of mm. part. But um, if we, uh, I think quantum physics in general, it requires a lot of work, right? Like, it's not like uh, we go and listen to or attend a few lectures and we'll understand. We need to understand the, the basics of it. And especially once we start following the history, how it was developed, you know, so there, there is some sense in it. You, you start understanding uh, the, the, the deeper nature, why we are, or like how we reached at this theory. And, and uh, I mean, the, the, one of the experiments that I can think of is the double slit experiment, which was, I think, the, the beginning of uh, quantum uh, mechanics or the understanding of quantum mechanics. So what is this experiment? And, and let's like kind of start from there. Well, I mean, the experiment predates quantum physics by quite, you know, quite a few decades. Uh, it was first performed by Thomas Young. Um, in I think the early 1800s to demonstrate that light behaved like a wave. So he wanted to show that in fact light light wasn't part, like part of, had a particle nature like I think Newton suggested, uh, but it was a wave. So he kind of shone a light, uh, or I think it was like sunlight coming through <laughs> coming through the window, and he took a like a sheet of paper whatever thick paper poke two holes in it they're slits so you, you cut like thin slits in it and you let the light pass through and if light is a particle then what you should find is two two strips of light on the other side but what he found was a, a pattern of bright and dark and in fact the brightest part was in between where the two slits were so this demonstrated that light obeys some sort of interference and acts like a wave and if you did the same experiment with like water waves or sound waves you would see the exact same pattern so there's pretty conclusive evidence by you know early 1900s or 19th century standards it's about as conclusive as you can get that that light is a wave um and and then i i don't think it really entered back in until uh, into the debate until actually like the 1920s when de Broglie Baum, uh, de, uh, Louis de Broglie suggested that um, matter, which we normally think of as particles, should be associated with wave properties as well. So at the time, Einstein had already shown that light not only behaves as a wave, but also as a particle. And this is what he won his Nobel Prize for, for explaining the photoelectric effect, that when you shine light on a, you know, a, a piece of metal, that electrons get ejected depending only on the frequency of the light, not on how powerful the light is. So he said that, oh, it must be the case that that what light is is these these particles that are hitting these electrons and when they match the energy, they get ejected. So at that time, we we you know we weren't we were comfortable with the fact that light was a wave you know had wave and particle like properties, but we assumed that matter was just a just particles. And then uh, Louis de Broglie came along and said, no, like there's they should be associated with a, with a 
wave properties as well. And uh, this double slit experiment kind of would would illustrate that. If you could shoot matter at some sort of plate with two slits cut in it, then either on the other side, you see a wave pattern, which is what Louis de Broglie suggested, or you just see two slits of matter behind it. Uh, it was many years before we could actually do the experiment, first with electrons, but indeed, of course, you know, we found that it it had wave-like properties. Yeah, which is fascinating. And I think it's it was actually both work of Einstein and uh, Einstein, as they, as they call it, <laughs> um, and uh, um, uh, Max Planck uh, on black body radiation. They both uh, started showing that, okay, it's the... Um, it's 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 basically uh, the the wavelength of the of the light which matters, right? In the in the case of rather than the strength. Yeah, that's right. So you you would expect that you know if you sh if you shine light on something, and it was causing something else to happen, when you turn up the brightness of the light, more of that would happen. But it doesn't. Um, the brightness doesn't matter. It's only the energy, and that's associated with the wavelength. And it's yeah, it's this uh, Planck, Einstein. Uh, I'm happy to do it in the Canadian accent. I'll just stay at Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and it was it, it was this relationship between the energy and the frequency or wavelength of light uh, that really kind of defines the, the, you know, that core fundamental concept of, of energy in quantum physics. Yeah. And the interesting part here is that simply these observations started refuting the classical mechanics, which was, uh, of course, developed by Newton and, uh, it was there all around, but just because that, that the fact that this energy, it comes into packets, uh, the, and that's what kind of, uh, started, uh, the or this was like the initial days of quantum physics right yeah so initially so i think what when when you learn quantum physics in um potentially in high school but certainly when once you get to university you learn like this historical aspects of it first and in fact there's there's two quantum theories there's the old quantum theory which is like um you know Planck, black body radiation, the photoelectric effect, all of these things that happened in the you know first two and a half decades of the 19th century, where it was seen as, oh, there's these, these slight anomalies in certain experiments, and we need to make these corrections, these quantum corrections to classical physics. Uh, but at the time, I think everybody thought that, oh, we just need to modify slightly classical physics. And, and then you know, in the in the 1920s, people like Heisenberg, Schrodinger, uh, Louis de Broglie came along and, and said, no, it's actually com completely different. And and then Dirac and von Neumann created sort of the this new mathematical framework. And from that framework, they could predict new things like antimatter and you know new forces and all, all this uh, stuff that came came after. So in in the first two, two decades, it was all, uh, you know, we need to tabulate all the corrections that we need to make to classical physics and someone's going to come come along and have a better clear theory of classical physics and sort this all out and then and then in the 1920s it just 
kind of everything changed and it became this completely new new theory yeah and what is the uh, quantum word in quantum physics what what is what does quantum mean in quantum yes. physics yeah yeah well so uh, that came really early on so uh, quantum just means like energy comes in chunks rather than uh, uh, as a continuous quantity so the, the quantum is the individual packets or chunks of energy that get exchanged between light and matter yeah so the um so so and then here basically this double slit experiment showed uh, kind of shown light uh, on matter the matter can act as both wave and particles as you already mentioned so uh, but then this wave particle duality uh, then it was i mean this was like one aspect of it which of course people started talking about it uh, the other aspect is the the heisenberg's principle what he could uh, i mean of course that he there are uh, there is a lot of uh, information there as well the the fact that he had to invent new mathematics to account for these changes etc but um, so what is that heisenberg's principle and how much that is important um, in in the case of quantum physics uh, st still do we consider this heisenberg's principle as as an important aspect yeah so heisenberg's so initially heisenberg had this um thought experiment it's, it's called heisenberg microscope and he imagined finding the position of an electron by shooting a single photon at it but they're of sort of comparable size in some sense and so if you hit the photon uh, against an electron and it bounces off you can find out where it was but now you've imparted some momentum onto the electron so you you his his original idea showed that you can't you can't measure things you can't measure properties of of, of objects without imparting some disturbance onto them so that that's sort of the that was his original idea and when people talk about heisenberg's uncertainty principle they often think that that that's what it means that you you can't measure things without affecting them but it goes a little bit deeper than that um, it's still called heisenberg's principle even though he didn't make the further developments of it and what it shows is that it it just doesn't make sense to assign properties to things before they're measured. So not only is there some uncertainty in measuring properties of, of objects, like when I go to measure the position and the velocity of a ball, there's always some residual uncertainty associated with that, some error that happens that can't be gotten rid of. And that is fundamentally due to the fact that before I measured it, those properties didn't exist. There wasn't predefined values that I'm just revealing through the process of measurement. And um, yeah, it's a. I mean, it's a, it's a fundamental aspect of, of quantum physics. And so it's still, you know, it's still always there and relevant today. I think that the probably the the most obvious place is in quantum cryptography. So if the act of measuring in, can you know, has to impart something onto the measured system, 
then when I'm communicating with you, you know, I'm, I'm using physical systems. In this case, I'm using, um, you know, uh, electromagnetic radiation between my computer and my router, and then light goes through fiber optic cables, you know, under the Pacific Ocean. So somebody could be listening to our conversation, but um, if we, if our communication happens with individual quantum systems and they attempt to uh, eavesdrop, then that will be detectable because of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Oh, that's interesting. So it'll be some sort of inference that uh, we'll, we'll uh, be able to get it? Yeah, so we can, uh, you know, I can send you some sort of test information and then we can we can just call each other up on the phone and say, hey, did that work out? And if it didn't, then we know that somebody was trying to interfere. Whereas with the way that we communicate today, uh, information is is so redundantly encoded that I can just, you know, look at it and copy it, right? It's like copying information from a USB stick that you don't know how many times it was copied, right? Um, whereas with quantum information, uh, it can't be copied. So you can detect that the presence of an attempt to do that. So you mean if they are listening to us right now, we can tell them that okay, we 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 are talking about quantum physics, mm -hmm. and one day soon, you know, the the technology will evolve, and <laughs> they should well, find better jobs or, or something like that. <laughs> uh, at the moment, yeah, I mean, we we're uh, we're recording uh, on Zoom, which which you know the little blue, uh, sorry, the green shield with the check marks says that this this is an encrypted conversation although you're going to post it on youtube right? yeah. see anyway <laughs> um but at the moment you know in this instant um it's encrypted but so that means that somebody could uh, copy and keep a, a copy of that encrypted communication uh that's you know i mean i'm broadcasting it over my over the wi-fi right so um but the thing is that we think that that problem of trying to crack this encryption is very difficult. And so that's why we believe that it's, it, this is a secure conversation. Um, but you know, maybe we can get to this later in the conversation. If we could build a quantum computer, that would no longer be the case. And you know, in maybe in 10 years time, someone could take that encrypted data and, and you know, uh, unlock it. Yeah, certainly we'll we'll talk about that in the uh, like later mm -hmm. in the conversation. So and then so uh, you know when we are thinking about this um, uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, the next step which comes is uh, from Schrödinger, who gave the uh, the, the so-called or the famous equation is the fa wave function uh, mm -hmm. uh, or Sch Schrödinger's equation. Um, so how does that relate to quantum physics? I mean. Uh, so far, we use it in our theories, in our calculations, right? I mean, people, they they are thinking, or, or at least this, this is also accepted that this, if there'll be some uh, theory of everything or, or something like that, Schrodinger's equation will be part of that or something, uh, something like that. So what, what's, what's your uh, thoughts on it? Well, yeah, so, so around the same time, Heisenberg invented matrix mechanics to account for his uncertainty principle. And then around the same time, uh, Schrodinger was looking at uh, Louis de Broglie's 
thesis where he talks about the wave properties of matter and said, okay, well, you know, if it's a wave and it ought to have some wave equation associated with it. And so he went and found out, you know, devised this wave equation. Um, and both in Heisenberg's matrix mechanics and Schrodinger's wave mechanics, there were complex numbers. And so you could see a relationship between them, but people didn't agree or know which one was right and which one was wrong. And then later, uh, Paul Dirac came along and said, well, there's a more abstract set of mathematics that, that you know, encompasses both of these. Like these are just two sides of the same coin. It's, you know, it's really just two different ways of looking at the same abstract thing. And that sort of was like the final straw in quantum physics, where it just became an abstract theory with complex numbers. Oh, that's so there's no, there's no like, um, you know, there's no special status for Schrodinger's equation. It's just one particular way to write down um, this, this, uh, the abstract mathematics. Yeah, but then this does give us like the other properties of quantum physics, like quantum superposition or uh, quantum entanglement. Um, is it true? Yeah, so we usually talk about quantum physics in terms of like what what's what we say is the Schrodinger picture, that there's this wave function. Um, it starts at a particular time and then evolves according to Schrodinger's equation. And, you know, it can develop properties like superposition and, and entanglement and these other things. Those are just particular kinds of wave functions that your initial one might evolve into. Uh, that's the, yeah, that, that one's probably, Schrodinger's picture is probably the most popular. And, you know, it's the one we use in quantum technology, but, you know, it's not a continuously changing wave anymore but things change in discrete chunks just like in a in a regular computer where you know steps there's a sequence of steps that happen uh, and you know there's a, a two steps you can take to to create entanglement or or superposition um, it's all very kind of simple and straightforward in in the context of quantum information and computation um, yeah. yeah, I definitely uh, want to talk about quantum information part. Um, so, but what is quantum superposition and quantum entanglement? Well, that they're kind of labels that we give to certain mathematical objects. So, I, I when I teach quantum computing, so I I teach quantum computing to computer science students. They have no background in physics whatsoever. So I have to teach them about superposition and entanglement. Uh, and the way I do it is, you know, I guess you could say somewhat inspired by Feynman is I have them create it. So they uh, write qu quantum software uh, to create superposition and entanglement, and then they can run those on, on quantum computers that exist in the cloud. In fact, one of my students, uh, e emailed me, uh, who has since graduated, and said, uh, it, you know, they're a computer scientist. They just took the one quantum information class as an elective. And they said, I'm so glad I took your class because I saw the news about the Nobel Prize and all of the stuff about how confusing it is. And, but in your class, I wrote a Python program and, <laughs> and I coded entanglement 
and I ran it in Python, right? Um, so it's it's not surprising to me. Uh, so I think um, one one way to think about it is that in in quantum physics we can we can represent uh, our information with classical labels, like conventional labels, like uh, a particle is definitely here or it's definitely over here. So I can write down my information with with classical physics. Um, but there's a rule in quantum physics that says uh, two states of information can be just at mathematically added together, and that's another valid state. So that that's true of like of all waves. If I have a water wave or a sound wave, um, then I can add two waves together and I get a new wave. So in quantum physics, the waves represent my information and one state of information can be added to another state of information and that's another valid state of information. Uh, and so if I've labeled two pieces of information with classical labels and then I and then I add them together, that's usually what's called a superposition uh, because I've kind of gave them these special labels at the outset. But that's that new state of information is just another state of information. So that's superposition. Now the classical information can contain correlations, like uh, the the particle is on the right and it's blue, or it's on the left and it's red. So those are two classical states of uh, two classical labels I can place on the states of information. Now if I add those together, I have a superposition, but they contain correlations. So entanglement is just superpositions that contain classical cor correlations that's interesting but the i mean of course once people they put it in like even simpler words the generally you know it is put it like uh, okay there are two particles uh, separated in space and they are linked to each other that's quantum entanglement uh, but so so what you are saying that it's we we see it um, in this way because we are still using classical uh, sort of semantics rather than thinking of it in a in a better way or uh, explaining it in a better way. Yeah, I think the the information theory perspective is is sort of the you know that's the ultimate perspective and and the one you know you should really just take um, because if you say the well first of all there's no such thing as particles right like. And according to our best theory, there's only fields. Particles are excitations in fields. So, uh, you know, at the uh, if you try to take this sort of, um, you know, traditional explanation where you talk about particles, then um, you know already at the outset you're you're making a category error. So, and then the, and then it it obviously leads to confusion. So there's no particles and there's no physical link be between them. Um, that that's not real, right? I mean that at best is an analogy, but it it's a bad analogy because it 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 immediately leads people to sort of supernatural thinking. Yeah, but then once we make the measurement, because that's the I think another layer here. Um, you see particles, right? Like this is what you are uh, seeing, or it. Or like, how do you look at it then? Is it the uh, now another updated information uh, element or something? Well, so ultimately the way I view quantum physics is 
it's a it's an operational framework. So it is a set of mathematical rules that allow you to describe in operational terms what happens when you do experiments. And what I mean is there's really no wave function or quantum state. There's just a prescription for what you need to do if you enter a lab, like which buttons to press, which knobs to turn, how to build it, right? That That's what a quantum state is. It's a list of instructions to to create an experiment. Um, and the same is true of, of a measurement. And what quantum theory does is it takes these two, uh, two lists of instructions and gives you a, a set of probabilities for the potential outcomes that you'll see. Uh, and those are just things that you, uh, you know, when you write, when you go and you write it down, it it's, you're already writing down your expectations for, for what experiences that you're going to have, right? So my, you know, in the double slit experiment, my experiences are little, uh, you know, little blips on a screen, right? Um, and, or you can just have an, an imaginary device that has two lights on it. And one of them, one of the lights goes off or the other light goes off. And that's the result of the measurement. Uh, if you go into a, a, a quantum physics lab, you, you know, it, you can't really point to where the particles are, right? You, you, you have equipment in a data stream, right? There's no, you don't observe particles, right? You observe voltages uh, on, on a spectrometer and, and a stream of data that's filtered through a bunch of electronics. Uh, and quantum physics gives you really accurate predictions for the outcomes of these experiments. But it says nothing about you know, what's, what's real, what reality. You know, in the rules of quantum physics, there's, there's no particles, there's no photons, or there's, there's none of this stuff, right? There's, it, that is sort of out a, a layer of interpretation that we put on top of, of quantum physics. Okay, this is interesting. So we are already going there where I wanted to go, of course. The, um, okay, so uh, then let's let's talk about uh, what is matter because this is where uh, then things go uh, um, or things become more complicated. And of course, people can take it in in a in a different way. Um, so because we are, I mean, of course, the, we are using these theories to develop technology, et cetera, but then other goal is to understand the nature of reality, right? Um, and from our reductionist point of view, this is what we want. What are the, uh, what are the fundamental forces? What, what are the fundamental particles that they come together and form every, everything that we see around us? Um, so how do we then look at matter? Uh, how do we look at those uh, or how do we find or understand those fundamental forces? Um, the, of course, like, I think you, even you would agree that quantum physics is one of the successful theories, even to describe um, the, the, the complexity, the emergence that we see around us. Um, so either it is missing something or uh, you, or you think that um, that we, or like, I don't know, like how, how, or where, where we can go with this in terms of understanding the nature of reality? I mean, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I don't subscribe wholeheartedly to the reductionist 
philosophy that it will actually lead to something to something fruitful to answer questions that we actually want answers to so what you know what is one uh well i mean we already see this with quantum physics let's take quantum physics as an example um you know let's suppose that, that there are no unexplained phenomenon right we, quantum physics is is the end um there's no yeah dark matter that you know there's there's no black holes there's there's no big bang at the beginning of the years so we we just have quantum physics it explains everything um but we still wouldn't use it to describe you know the real questions that matter to us like why am i here in the first place um <laughs> uh, you know what what are these experiences that i have you know i think uh a, a more concrete example is just you know traffic in the street uh, would it would it ever make sense to describe traffic in terms of all of the particles and forces that happen between all of the things that the cars are made of no that would never help right traffic isn't contained within the laws of quantum physics yet that's still an important concept so uh you know i think it it was this was sort of popularized by anderson you know in his uh, i think in his nobel um lecture and he said more is different right that you 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 have these hierarchies of theories and the you know he rejected this reductionist view that if i know everything about the constituent parts then i can just derive what what will happen at the higher level and, and that's just i mean we see that that's just not the, not the case already so if it's already not the case you know why why are we continuing down this path like i agree you know reductionism has served us well for in many situations but you know it's it it isn't the be all and, and end all so what you're suggesting that uh, the people at cern they should uh, be cautious now like where they can go afterwards um or you know in general like this thinking about matter what is matter and nature of reality that th these are just philosophical questions and we shouldn't continue down that line i no what i'm saying is that the that the answers to these questions won't be found in in reductionism as I, as i said we you know we understand quantum physics really well and under you know with this model that you know that thing that there are these fundamental part these fundamental particles and the fundamental forces and that's all there is and they go together like lego blocks to to build all the stuff around us uh we still we don't use that to decide what to have for breakfast what you know to to debate what it means to uh to see the color red right uh it's it's not it's not useful for these things right like there's i don't know where where the limitations are i think there's still lots of fruitful things that we can use this theory for but it it there there are these levels of of complexity and 
at higher levels, you need a different theory that's relevant to that level. And you can't simply derive meaning at higher levels from fundamental laws at lower levels. Yeah, but is there something important down there or no? Like that's the, I think, because of course, once we look at the emergent phenomena, we will not be able to um, uh, explain everything. I mean, uh, of course you explain the traffic part, but then apart from that, even if we look at from our uh, materialistic point of view, we won't be able to un understand psychology from uh, quantum physics or, you know, uh, economy and this stuff, right? <laughs> um, which is, of course, I mean, there is a Nobel Prize this year, but then we are hearing news about inflation and everything. So that we can <laughs> already understand there. Uh, but then, yeah, the, the question is because like the people who are working on, um, on, on this stuff to understand the nature of matter, I mean, definitely there is a lot, a lot of scope in terms of technology and engineering, but um, in terms of basic science, as they call it, uh, do we have some fruits there or we are just uh, roaming around? <laughs> I mean, it, it, they're, they're questions, right? And some people want them answered and that's the nature of science, right? That, you know, that science progresses because people have questions that they are compelled to answer. Uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that they don't answer them and I don't know what will come of those answers, but a theory of everything won't make biology uh, irrelevant, right? It won't make psychology irrelevant. You know, and and I think that these questions are are far more interesting. I, I'm not I'm not interested in a theory of everything. A theory of everything will just be a, you know another chapter in a in a textbook about about physics. It's it's not going to tell me you know what, why life exists. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Um, I, I think Sean Carroll has similar views. So what he talks about is the, the fact that we already have the standard uh, model in physics means this is, uh, so, so we already have discovered or uh, uh, found the, the forces and the particles which are important in our daily life and in, in, the, in the daily world. So it's not like that some, we will find something which will uh, explain um, you know, something more in, in, in terms of our daily understanding. It's just that, okay, whatever we will find now, that'll just help physics or um, in, gen in general, like our thinking beyond our daily lives. And so it's not like it's going to impact uh, the way we, uh, or in, in the world that where we live and uh, how we see world, et cetera. Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree with that. I go one step further and I think that many people, they have they have these deep questions. Like they want meaning in their life, for example. They want to know, what, yeah, what is yeah, what what does this mean? And they think that, well, you know, maybe the next revolution in science, like the the theory of everything, for example, is is going to give us that, right? It's that, you know, what it's the one thing that we don't know, so it must be the answer that it must contain the answer that I'm that I'm searching for and. Um, and, and so it's not just our daily lives, but also like the, you know, the deep questions that we all have uh, that won't be answered by a theory of everything. Yeah. The only point which I think that 
we don't understand much and uh, this is something i think also really important to even understand biology origin of life etc is the fact uh, the or is the science of uh, chance luck uh, chaos you know we can call it so all those all those factors like how do they get affected because i think this is what this is where we are not uh, able to uh, progress much i mean the fact that we can't predict uh, weather for next few days in in like so much accuracy which is which should be like simplistic than uh, i don't know understanding psychology or economy or something uh, so th- th- that that shows that something like this is what we lack so we i don't know if we really need a theory of everything but we definitely need a theory which will uh, kind of uh, account for this chance events or luck or chaos how difficult it is i don't know i mean well i i mean if you i guess you could take as an example say um say flight right so when you think about flight you know early on people were looking for uh, you know just some some object that would stay stable in the air but you know they didn't have chaos theory at the time but as you know like turbulence and things quickly make things go out of control and what was the solution the solution was was control theory that's what the wright brothers were famous for they gave control to the pilot they made an aircraft that was fundamentally unstable you know it wouldn't fly on its own it needed a pilot to correct with feedback for errors um so you know if you if you want to if we want to get into science fiction then i think you know we we we're not going to find a way to predict the outcomes of chaotic events that's sort of the <laughs> that's the definition of chaos right um but we can be clever engineers and what we can do is we can turn chaos into stable stable environments yeah that's interesting so then it so that means um it goes into a little bit of like understanding what is chaos are there like just the factors which we are missing in our models that we need to include etc um like the understanding of chaos itself right well i think uh you know the the principles of of a flight don't rely on the fine details of of you know every air mo- molecule right uh so there's there's obviously for for any aircraft there's there's you know failure modes but the idea is it's it's sort of independent of the model of of say the air the air around the, the airplane right um so it, it the control laws that that are used to enact the feedback to make sure that the plane stay stable are are make assumptions about what what the environment is uh but those are really really weak assumptions that you don't need to know the fine details the fine details of them of course if you were like you know if you were an adversary in that scenario then then you could make sure that it it doesn't fly but um i think that's sort of the the point right is that you you can get rid of all of the details that cause it to be chaotic uh with with the you know this mechanism of of control 
Yeah. And um, so since we were also talking about quantum information, so what do you mean by quantum information? Well, so quantum information is a, is an, a way to represent our knowledge with vectors. So uh, normally we represent our knowledge with like uh, with numbers, and usually these numbers are are bits, ones and zeros. Um, so the digital computers utilize this representation of information, ones and zeros. Uh, but that's not the only the only way to do it. Uh, there are other ways to represent information with different mathematical objects. Uh, so you can have um, continuous numbers. So uh, old uh, analog devices would use gears, right? Um, gears and pulleys and, and things. And so that's a continuous numbers. Uh, in quantum physics, we use vectors. So these are lists of numbers. Uh, and the numbers happen, happen to be complex numbers. So uh, those are just a, kind of a, a, different, a different set of numbers. So you have these lists of complex numbers and uh, you turn one list into another list and that's the process of changing that information. Now, it's not, in some sense, it's not fundamentally different than digital information because I, you know, by simply by telling you, describing it to you means that I can represent it with digital information. It just so happens that it takes a lot of digital information to represent quantum information. So it's sort of a new compact way to represent certain states of knowledge. And then where does the, um, the, the probabilities here account? I mean, are there, um, is it like really binary or there are gradients here? So I have, um, I have a, a, a list of, of complex numbers and I can, I can manipulate the, that list of complex numbers according to a set of rules, and that would be an algorithm. So if I can take a list of complex numbers and I can change it in certain, certain ways, uh, then I've created a, a quantum algorithm. And I can, uh, you know, there might be some problems that I can solve faster using a quantum algorithm than I could with a con conventional classical algorithm. And that in, is indeed the case. So the next question would be, well, that sounds terrible to do by hand. Couldn't we just build a machine to do that for us? And yes, you can, because uh, quantum physics gives us a set of things in the world which naturally encode these vectors, these complex numbers, right? So it's photons and atoms and all these quantum things. So the probabilities come back in because in order to read that information, I have to measure the quantum system, which involves the probabilities. So, uh, of course, you know we we have this theory of quantum information that includes that as a constraint that you can't just read the list of numbers; you only get one of the numbers with some probability, uh, because the only way we know how to build machines to automate this process for us is with the rules of quantum physics, which say that uh, you know you 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 can't you can't do this without invoking probability at some place. 
I think here we can also briefly uh, describe what are complex numbers. Well, a complex numbers, so I think the easiest way to understand complex numbers is as uh, a pair of two real numbers. So a real number is is just any sort of any number on the number line. So um, not integers, not fractions, but everything in between those. So from minus infinity to infinity, all the way through zero, you know, all your decimals, th those are the real numbers. So if I take the those numbers and I I take a pair of them and I create a new rule for multiplying pairs of numbers together, then I've created what what's known as a as a complex number. And you know they were just invented because uh, it's a convenient way to represent waves. So it's it's not just used in quantum physics; it's used in like electronic engineering because it it just makes of uh, things that deal with waves easier to calculate. I mean, the example would be uh, the particle-antiparticle anti combination, right? Like uh, taking the example of electron-positron combination. Well, as, I, 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 I don't, I wouldn't say that there's a direct mapping of complex numbers to things in the world. There. Um, you because you can write down all of quantum physics without any complex numbers. It's just inconvenient. So in some sense, they're there because of convenience. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's just a, a a new a new like real numbers themselves. you can't you can't go out in the world and find you know real numbers, right? Um, so far as we can tell, the 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 universe is discrete. That's what quantum physics says. So, there's no real numbers in the world. It's a it's a mathematical convenience that makes things like calculus easier. So these complex numbers just make kind of calculus with waves easier. Yeah. So since you mentioned about quantum information theory, um, I think here the information part is also interesting because, um, of course, then philosophers they argue that you know if you if there is information means already uh, the the mentation part uh, the consciousness part it 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 enters in the picture it means because it requires uh consciousness to to make because th that's that's what like information is uh there right um mm. what what's your comment on that yeah i i it's information only has meaning to to us right so in some sense uh, information was born when the first human decided to communicate with another one uh, it it's yeah it's it's only it's only useful to us if if some alien civilization found a hard drive it, to them it would be just meaningless nonsense right it's it's only it's only a useful concept uh to us and so i i guess that's the connection i suppose between you know the subjectivity of of experience and consciousness and consciousness and and information so uh, then here let's bring the other uh, people also that so so i mean i have interviewed at least two guys um bernardo castro um 
and uh, so he he's a philosopher who talks about the the the, the consciousness is fundamental in the nature in the nature and donald hoffman who uh, mm. talks about that sp- space time is not fundamental and it's the there is something beyond space time mm. and again it's con- consciousness uh, which is fundamental so what are your thoughts on this that the so i mean so one perspective is this the, the the way you said it that okay there is some information uh, but it only makes sense when we kind of start conceiving it or um, so of course then there is consciousness but then uh, stretching it to 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 the extent where we kind of uh, take it intuitively that okay consciousness is fundamental that's why the information evolves in the universe what, what do you think if it's true or if it makes sense or not yeah, I mean, we're we're I think we're stretching language pretty thin at this point, right? I think uh, we get we get be beyond science, and by science I mean like coming up with mm, testable hypotheses, right? Uh, into into philosophy, and that, and you know that's not bad, but uh i would maintain that every philosophical statement you can say with clarity is going to be wrong because uh, just it's just a, a matter of language right Lang- language itself is not sufficient to come up with definitive answers to to questions right the purpose of language is is to communicate between people um but what you know what do i know for certain is that I have experiences. That's, you know, I think that's the limit of it. Um, uh, you know, I see on my screen, you, uh, you're a two-dimensional object, but I can create in my mind a three-dimensional image of you. Uh, it's useful for me to assume that you're kind of like me and you you have experiences as well. And I had, then that gives me expectations for how you're going to act and how we might interact and what we might agree upon. And then, you know, I extend this to all the people around me. And then I, now I have like this network of people that, uh, you know, seem to have experiences and, and expectations and where those line up, that's kind of just what we call reality. Right? It's just that our inner subjective agreement about our experiences uh and i think that that's it that's to me that's sort of like all we can say and beyond that i I don't think we have the tools at the moment and maybe we never will to to explore beyond that point yeah, but the people who uh, who kind of know about quantum physics and they have uh, tried to stretch it, you know, in different words like terms, quantum consciousness is one example. Uh, and and I think the uh, uh, from the historical point of view, uh, one of the guy or one of the scientists who actually uh, mystified it a bit more with so it was this uh, Wigner's friends ex- ex- mm. experiment, right? So let's talk a little bit about that and. Uh, if uh, because I think now a uh, lot of studies or some studies that they are coming, uh, which kind of refute his idea about it, right? Yeah, so I think you you start with Schrodinger's cat, right? Um, so you have 
the Schrodinger's cat paradox where there's a, a cat, it's, it's in a box, there's a vial of poison and a atom that may or may not decay and a Geiger counter which hits a hammer, breaks the poison vial and kills the cat. So because of the randomness of quantum physics, you have to assign this superposition of decayed and not decayed to the atom. And that means that uh, there's a correlation between the atom being decayed and the cat being dead because the decayed atom set off the Geiger counter and broke the, the vial. Um, so Wigner said, uh, okay, what, what, hap what about if I put Schrodinger and his box inside of a bigger box, and then I ask about what happens to them, right? So for, for Schrodinger inside the box, he has an expectation. He's going to open the box, find a, a live cat or a dead cat. And so his state of knowledge has to be in superposition as well for the person outside the box. And this is sort of like the contradiction, I guess, because, um, because Schrodinger is not in superposition. He has definite experiences, right, about classical things. So how could his mind be in superposition? Um, so for, for some people, I think this just illustrates the idea that these states that we're assigning to things are really states of knowledge. And it, and it, and it doesn't matter that there, there isn't one right answer to the correct state. It really depends on the context. So for, for Schrodinger, he is free to assign one kind of quantum state. And for Wigner, and normally it's, it's Wigner in the box and then Wigner's friend is watching him. Um, for the person outside, they can assign um, a superposition or an entangled state to what's going on in their bigger box. And that's all consistent because if everybody just assigns quantum states according to their expectations, then this is where quantum physics is successful. Yeah, but, but then where is mysticism in this? Well, I guess the 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 question people pose. So, so some some people want to say that these quantum states, right, are they are the the things they are the things that are real elements of reality. So, it's it's when you do that, then things become weird. So if I say uh, the cat, the state alive plus dead, is real, then that's that seems mystical, right? Uh, is it alive and dead at the same time? Do I have to introduce many worlds? This this is where the mysticism comes from. When you attempt to be a realist and say that the state is associated with like some ontology, some elements of reality. Um, but if you if you say that quantum states are just our own individual private expectations for what will happen when we do experiments, then you don't get into any problems. But most physicists don't like this. They think they want more, right? They want to know, oh, what, yeah, they want to know what what it says about reality. And you know, people like Niels Bohr said, that's not the the job of physics isn't to describe reality, right? It's to describe stuff that happens in, ex, in experiments. 
Yeah. So the um, so here I think the interesting part the or is is the fact that uh, most of the physicists they don't talk about uh, is the decoherence part. So the fact that so in in most of these thought experiments, first of all, we uh, you know there are always this kind of sentient beings, uh, you know, mm. either cats or humans. Instead of thinking of uh, uh, thinking of particles, you kind of directly replace the sentient beings, and you then you know kind of mystify it, right? Um, but on the other hand, this is reality. Reality in the sense that what we observe, we we kind of observe this more like classical world. We don't really observe the quantum world or things here and there and all that stuff, right? So this mm. gap, this gap is um, how do we cover this gap? Well, you know, in experiments, we do in some sense cover it. So I would say that. Mm, Quantum physics is, is a set of models that work really well in the following situation. When you can identify some phenomenon that is extremely well isolated from any other, any other environment. Um, and that makes sense for atoms, like on the scale of an atom, it, it's mostly surrounded by empty space, right? The, the distance between atoms you know, at the scale of an atom is huge. So it's well isolated. And that's why quantum physics works well to describe it. From this point of view, um, of course, you could never do Schrodinger's cat experiment because if you isolated it from its environment, it would surely be dead, right? Um, and, you know, ultimately that's why the quantum physics will never be relevant for us at the macro scale because you know, we are reliant on the environment that we're in. Uh, so if I if I take a if I take a system and I isolate it, then it will be really well described by quantum physics, and you'll get superpositions and all of that stuff. Uh, if there's an interaction with the environment, then it starts to take away information from that system, and that's what's called decoherence. And in in experiments, we can we can probe this transition. You know, we can we can watch, you know, in some sense, watch the the quantumness turn into classicalness as a as a function of how much information is being um, sent out into the environment. That's interesting. So I think here probably it's a good time to talk about quantum computing, uh, where where you use uh, quantum information and so so how far we can stretch uh, first of all let's let's simply talk about how how do the uh, quantum computers look so we have a few of them all around the world uh, what i get right now yeah um I, I mean we've lost count now i mean there's 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 quite a few they're all small so the fundamental unit of information that we use in our digital electronics is the bit uh, and around yeah, the early 90s, yeah, early 90s, I think, uh, the qubit was coined as the fundamental unit of quantum information. Um, so all quantum information can be represented as uh, some number of these qubits. And so these are, again, these vectors of complex numbers, so lists of complex numbers, but there's only two of them. So it's a, a vector that only has two entries. And all other quantum information, you know, no matter how big the vector is, you can write as a bunch of these, um, these 
two, you know, two number vectors. The computers that we have today are, you know, in the in the sort of five to twenty. So you there's public access to quantum computers that have five qubits. And then if you pay a little bit more, you can get access to ones with 20. And then there's some like research grade ones that may or may not have like a hundred qubits or so. Um, yeah, so that's sort of the state of play at the moment, 2022, October. <laughs> um, so this qubit means um, the the complexity. I mean, uh, how does it help in thinking or replacing uh, binary uh, bits that we use in our normal computers? Yeah, so you can, so two complex numbers um, with say 32 bits of precision um, requires 64 bits. So that that that's eight bytes. So that's not a lot, you know, eight bytes is not a lot. I can represent a qubit with eight bytes. Um, but the issue is every qubit that I add doubles the requirement. So by the time I get to 30 qubits, then that's four gigabytes, right? And, you know, that's probably, you know, the limit of the RAM of a, an average computer these days. So if I get to 100 qubits, then I require more bytes than, you know, all of the, all of the classical computer memory that exists in the world, right? Because it doubles every time. So uh, that's sort of where the efficiency and capacity in, in, in qubits comes from. So uh, what does this mean that all the all the classical computers means all of them combined together or it's just that you're talking about the space that we have in one sort of classical computer? So uh, because it's information, uh, like I can represent it sort of virtually, right? So the, the information that I see on my screen right now, like your face, um, doesn't map directly to transistors in my computer like it's virtual information uh, um, a lot of all of the components of the computer come together to to create to create it um, so I can create a virtual quantum computer with my mobile phone that has 30 qubits um, but if I wanted to represent a 31 qubit quantum computer I need two mobile phones and if I wanted to represent a 32 qubit quantum computer I'd need four mobile phones, 33 is eight, right? And you can see that the doubling happens quite quickly. And by the time I get to a hundred qubit quantum computer, I could virtually represent that, but I would need all the mobile phones <laughs> that exist in the world to do it. Or I could just naturally represent it as vectors with a hundred quantum systems. This is interesting. So how big is uh, these quantum computers? Yeah, so so uh, you know, I, IBM and Google are sort of at the forefront and they have around a hundred. Uh -huh. So but the problem is that they're not perfect. So we, they're very limited in what you can do with them. So you know they're it it's not a, it's not as if that technology, is has surpassed conventional technology because of 
of how noisy the, the environment is. Remember, for it to behave in a quantum mechanical way, it has to be isolated from the environment. And, you know, in these, and they, you know, they try really hard. Like they put them in what's called a dilution refrigerator with liquid helium, which means that it's you know thousand millikelvin, which is like thousands of times colder than outer space. Right, it's the coldest place in the universe, and um, and still there's environment that that get that is corrupting these devices. So it's a huge challenge to to isolate them, uh, and you know again that I guess this is where you know the idea of control comes in. That rather than trying to just isolate them. What we need to do is actively correct the effects of errors that come in from the environment. And the the errors are basically, um, or can we just simply call it uh, a collapse of the wave function? Because it's, I think, that it lo loses the this this kind of quantum properties once it's uh, observed somehow, like. Mm, and no, it's not. It's not quite the same as that, that concept of collapse. So it's what. What happens is um, the the description of the quantum information gets so initially you want it mapped to, on this device that you have isolated, but there's some environmental interactions, and so the the information gets mapped to something in the environment, but you can't keep track of it, right? It's some cosmic ray that flew in and <laughs> interacted with your device and then flew off in the other direction. Um, it's not like you can go track that down to get the information back. So you you can't copy quantum information. And so as soon as it a piece of it leaves the device, it's gone, it's gone forever. Um, and so the this happens quite quickly, um, you know, on millisecond timescales in, in today's quantum devices. So um, we can't keep them, we can't keep the quantum information, you know, in some sense alive. Uh, long enough to do any quantum computation that would show an advantage over over conventional electronics today. So basically, let's say if we encode some information in few particles, and uh, as soon as these particles they leave, they can simply interact with the other particles which don't have this information. But then it it just gets mm -hmm. messed up, like on the way or something. Is it? Yeah, so so you have two 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 particles and and in the, the there you've somehow correlated them, right? Um, like you said, par particle antiparticles, you know, for example, right? Um, or you know, we'd like to talk about spin, or you know, it, it could be anything. They're they're correlated in their properties, and if one of them interacts with the with an environment, then the other one is now correlated with that particle in the environment. So if you want to you know, if you're familiar with the note, like the language of entanglement, then you say at first the two of them are entangled, but one of them interacted with the environment. Now one of them is entangled with a particle in the environment, and that particle is lost. And so what you're left with is is essentially, you know, random, just random, which is not information at all. Yeah. So I think here we can talk about uh, this year's Nobel Prize uh, in physics. Um, because it was given for both quantum entanglement and quantum information. Mm. So the, the work of John Clauser or Alain Aspect or um, Anton Zeilinger. Um, 
So uh, first of all, like, what's your view on the on the Nobel Prize? How uh, maybe it was already needed, <laughs> but like, what what do you think? Yeah, I think it was it's well deserved and and yeah, overdue. Um, I think uh, you know it sort of culminated in Zeilinger's experiments in the late '90s. So, uh, you know, you could have given the Nobel Prize back then. <laughs> um, it's you know the it, it, it you can really see if you're kind of in the community that uh, there are these sort of clicks and and you know quantum information wasn't seen as as physics for a long time um nowadays that that that's changed and so uh and for many people who went through those decades where their work wasn't you know seen as as part of physics this nobel prize is in some sense validating uh, but for younger people i mean i'm not that young anymore but um, certainly much younger than Clauser. Uh, you know, we didn't, luckily we didn't go through that, right? When I did my degree and finished in uh, 2012, uh, you know, it was a sort of, it was a, it was a hot field, right? And there was, you know, it was kind of already seen as a legitimate uh, field of physics and science. Yeah, let's talk about at least the uh, uh, the experiment um, uh, done by Zeilinger because I think he really nailed it down to to the point to kind of show uh, that entanglement is true, and then there is this information, or there can be information encoded in two particles which are separated in space. Yeah, so I mean, we can. I th you know, Zeilinger did a lot of experiments in, in entanglement, so. Uh, Clauser did right, one, maybe two, and uh, aspected, you know, the at least in terms of the Bell inequalities, which was cited in the in the Nobel Prize. Uh, he uh, he maybe only did a few experiments, as well, and then Zeilinger came, you know, a decade and a half later, and uh, did re, you know redid those experiments to higher and higher precision, but then also used those experiments to to enact quantum information protocols like quantum teleportation and and these sorts of things and and that's why the nobel prize says uh applications in quantum information science and so that was zeilinger's part like he took these fundamental experiments and said um you know what wait a minute we you know we can use these things to achieve tech you know technological ad advancement Right, uh, and and so in the in the late nineties, and, and you know what he's doing now is developing, you know, this fundamental science to eventually realize, uh, you know, a, a fully sort of quantum internet, a quantum network. Yeah, which is to some extent it's it's already being used, right? Like there are uh, systems which, um, especially in China, that there is a system that they could develop and they could they could use this uh, system uh, miles away and uh, could use it for uh, the information transfer, et cetera. Yeah, I think it was, I mean, I don't know if it was Zeilinger's group specifically, but there was the, the sort of quantum satellite community demonstrated um, quantum communication between Vienna and Shanghai. I, I think it was Shanghai. 
um, via satellite link. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's still very sort of nascent technology, but uh, you know, the, the, the proof of principle experiments are done, right? And to, to again, to someone of my generation, none of it is surprising. I mean, it's it's like being told that the sun is the center of the solar system, right? It's, it's like you had this, you have this theory, it's incredibly successful. So all of the predictions uh, shouldn't be surprising, <laughs> right? Yeah, one thing which is uh, revolving around uh you know the these experiments and this the idea of these technologies is the the fact that it can boost a lot of speed and uh, of course the crypto part that you mentioned before um, so how much uh, reality is there well again we know just from mathematical fact that if you can uh, if you can manipulate the this quantum information it, it, yeah, not if you can, but if you manipulate quantum information in a certain way, then you can solve problems with fewer steps than you can if you use digital computers. Okay, so that that's just a mathematical fact. There's a there's a website. It's called the Quantum Algorithm Zoo, and it has like 65 mathematical problems that you can more efficiently solve using quantum information than than classical information. Uh, so. Yeah, that that's what quantum theory says. So, like, if you believe quantum theory is true, then it's not. It, there's no question, right? It's just a matter of of engineering to build the technology to enact the control necessary to automate it. And people can you can you, know, you can do the calculations by hand. It would just take you a, a really long time, uh, and nobody wants to do that. And yeah, humans are probably more prone to errors than than <laughs> machines so um yeah if we if if we build the machine um then it'll be yeah it'll be faster it's just a predict another prediction that will eventually come true about about quantum physics yeah this is like fascinating um so most of the uh, concepts that we discussed today, I mean, it's uh, uh, we, we can already think, and I'm I'm sure there'll be few comments that it's it's all complicated, etc. I mean, of course, we didn't talk about equations and stuff most of the time, uh, but in your case, you write uh, about these concepts for babies. So right. <laughs> <laughs> what's going on there? <laughs> um, yeah, I think. It's a bit tongue in cheek, obviously. Uh, there's no, yeah, uh, there's no babies taking quantum physics exams. <laughs> um, I, I think it, it serves an important place in in early childhood literature. In that, uh, uh, like you said, a lot of people think it's really complicated, and it's somehow reserved for, for people with PhDs. Um, but I, I like to think of it more like music, right? So you have classical music. Nobody enjoys classical music the first time they hear it. You have to like want to enjoy it. You have to study it to really kind of understand why, why, what joy you should get out of it, right? Uh, but then there's pop music, which you know everyone likes pop music. Um, you know, so we have the complicated version of quantum physics, but we don't have the simple version that everyone can understand. And and I, I think everyone should be able to understand the basic things 
in in quantum physics and so in, in the books you know we don't go through all the details and we certainly don't go down philosophical rabbit holes <laughs> uh you know giving infants existential crises but uh you know we do we talk about the basic things so in quantum physics you know wh where does the word quantum come from it comes from the fact that energy is transferred one chunk at a time between matter and uh and light and there's a quantum computing for babies and I, yeah i just talk about the same thing i mentioned to you it's actually the same analogy that you can represent uh, the information contained in a molecule um, with your mobile phone but the bigger the molecule is the more phones you need and if you want to represent my favorite molecule which is a caffeine molecule then um then you would need all the all the phones in the world right so it's just a, these you know little kind of fundamental concepts and facts and uh analogies with pictures um so that you know people can have at least a little bit of knowledge about these things yeah, I think it's a great idea because uh, also to kind of develop that kind of curiosity, even in like these growing children, uh, it'll be it'll be interesting. I mean, if they are asking these questions, certainly uh, teachers will start working more in their uh, lectures and stuff. So <laughs> that's <laughs> that's definitely uh, helpful. Um, so yeah, so thank you so much for the conversation. I think this the we we covered a lot of territory. Uh, a uh, lot of information is there. Uh, I think more than the quantum information, but we'll see uh, <laughs> what people think about it. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for doing this. It was great. Yeah, thanks for having me.